0: All right, what I'd like you to do now is strap your seatbelt on, hook it in, come with me as we jump in the airplane. We're going to fly up a few thousand meters in the air, and we're going to fly over a forest by the name of Mark. So we're not going to walk through the forest today, analyzing the individual trees in the forest. We're going to kind of get the bird's eye view, pretend you're a bird, flying over a forest, getting the big picture of the Gospel according to Mark. One of the important questions the Gospel of Mark answers for us is, who was Jesus Christ? Well, if you do a Google search like I did yesterday, (laughs) type in the name Jesus in Google, and then you hit enter, see what you get. You get all kinds of interesting information. In fact, there are 142 million hits, as of the year 2013, anyway. The year 2013, I, I, what came up on my computer, 142 million hits on Jesus. And if you search for Jesus at Amazon.com, that's also an amazing thing to do. You would come up with 260,000 books on Jesus Christ. And given the smorgasbord of competing views in our world, some have even asked, can we still have confidence in the historical Jesus? Can we have confidence in the historical Jesus? And there's all kinds of many, there's just so many ideas out there about Jesus. A lot of people are confused. Some people are wrong. Let me give you some of these ideas. For example, some call Jesus Christ a prophet prophet. For example, Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet, but they certainly don't believe that Jesus is God. And just so you understand, there is an eternity of difference between believing that someone is a prophet and he's also God. In fact, there are eternal consequences. The error of of that belief that he's a prophet but not God has eternal consequences. Well, there are some people that believe that Jesus is just a product of people's imagination. Yes, you heard me right. There are many liberals out there who think Jesus is just a product of someone's imagination. And if you don't believe me, one of the very well-known liberals by the name of Albert Schweitzer summarized this liberal heresy in his very famous book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And I quote... Albert Schweitzer, quote, The Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward publicly as the Messiah, never had any existence. He is a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in an an historical garb, end quote. And he's not alone. Many liberals believe that. Perhaps the most popular view is that Jesus was just a good man. He was a great moral teacher, but they kind of just stay at that level. To answer that particular argument, I can't get away from what C.S. Lewis wrote many years ago. I quote from C.S. Lewis in his uh, very good book called Mere Christianity. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. So you've heard it said, there's only three options. With Jesus, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Right? If he's a liar or a lunatic, you need to flee those of us who are also (laughs) crazy about Jesus. But if he's Lord, you must fall down and worship. That's the only options available to you. So what is the truth about Jesus? There's just some of the ideas you can find about Jesus. But what is the truth? That's hopefully what we really want to know about, right? The truth. Well, in today's study, we're going to get the big picture of this gospel, this good news according to a man named John Mark. We're not calling on recent historians here. We're not calling on men like Albert Schweitzer or C.S. Lewis or anybody else. We're actually going back almost 2,000 years. We are going back to someone who was there. Someone who was an eyewitness. Someone who knew the apostles, especially the Apostle Peter. So, let's listen to the account of a first century follower of Jesus. And let's ask the question here to start with. I've got a series of questions we'll ask and answer, but my first one is this. What do we know about the book of Mark? What do we know about the book of Mark? Well, let's talk about the author first, okay? You need to understand who the the human author that the Holy Spirit used. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, all the books of Scripture, And the Holy Spirit uses various human authors to write these books. And in this case, we have a man named John Mark. You hopefully have heard of him in Scripture. He is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. He was a young man who had a shaky beginning in the ministry. And if you're not familiar with his story, let me tell you why he had this shaky beginning in ministry. Because... The Apostle Paul took John Mark on his first missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 13. So he started well. He's with a a good person by the name of Paul. But somewhere along that missionary journey, he decided this wasn't for me, and he abandoned Paul, and he returned home. In fact, the Bible said Paul was so unhappy with John Mark that he refused to take him on the second missionary journey. So apparently he had a little change of mind uh, after having gone home, uh, which is I'm glad to hear. But Paul wasn't happy. I think he was probably concerned, this guy's going to abandon us again. Well, as a result of that, uh, a quarrel broke out between Paul and Barnabas. Paul did not want to take John Mark. Barnabas did. So God ended up using that quarrel to end up Instead of just having one missionary team, God used it to have two missionary teams going out and establishing churches and strengthening the ones that already existed. So in the end, Paul and Mark, you might be wondering, well, what ended up up happening to them? Well, they reconciled. In fact, if you read in Colossians chapter 4, it says there that uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome, they were able to reconcile. Apparently, Mark served as Paul's aide, and then eventually Paul sent him out as a delegate on a very important mission to go into Asia Minor. And then if you read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, later Paul would eventually ask Timothy to bring John Mark back to him, to Rome. And Paul specifically said the reason why. because He says, he is useful to me for the ministry. So there was a Reconciliation. I don't know about you, but as I think about the human author whom the Holy Spirit uses here, I'm encouraged because I am a failure, just like John Mark. I'm a sinner, just like John Mark. And the great news is that God uses sinners to accomplish his purposes. Here we have a man who was a sinner, a failure. He abandoned the ministry at some point in his life, but yet God ended up using him to write Scripture. So that's the author, but what about the date? Well, the date is, like a lot of books in the Bible, sometimes debated. And I mentioned the date because you need to understand, this human author is writing sometime in the 50s. And I don't mean the 1950s, I mean the 50s, as in first century. This is a man who was familiar with Jesus. Most likely had seen Jesus, had talked to Jesus, certainly knew the Apostle Peter. This is someone who is an eyewitness. This is not somebody who is long, long past the time of Christ, just a couple decades after Christ. The source, as I've already mentioned, some have wondered, well, where did Mark learn everything he includes in this gospel? Well, as I said, Mark was probably an eyewitness to some of Jesus' life. Probably not all of it, but certainly some. Yet Mark's gospel has also been associated with the Apostle Peter. According to tradition, Mark wrote down Peter's account near the end of Peter's ministry. Remember, Peter ends up dying in Rome. Peter knew Mark and told Mark everything he needed to know about Jesus. Why is Mark writing? Why, why is there four Gospels? You ever wondered that? Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why, why can we not just have Matthew or just the Gospel? Why is there four? A lot of people have wondered that. Well, you need to understand they all have a different emphasis, a different purpose in writing. So remember, Matthew showing Jesus is king. Luke showing that Jesus is man. John shows Jesus is God. And so Mark is writing to the Romans, and the Romans are all about doing and activities, which is why whenever they conquer someone, they've got to set up some huge monument or pillar or something, you know. Well, <clears throat> so he's writing to Rome, and he's showing that Jesus is a servant. Jesus is a servant. Now, I'll prove that to you as we go through the book of Mark. The structure of Mark's quite interesting. In fact, the structure of Mark's gospel is quite straightforward. It's the shortest of the gospels. It contains the quickest beginning of any of the four gospels. Mark just jumps right in. In fact, if you look at the very first verse in the gospel according to Mark, he just says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. <laughs> he, he's no wasting any time. He's, he's right in there. He's not beating around the bush. In chapters 1 through 8, let me just give you a quick overview of the structure. In chapters 1 through 8, they provide a record of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So nothing about his birth, like Luke does, or Matthew. You know, John, he just jumps in at the beginning, chapter 1. He, he talks about the awesome beginnings. that In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that's John's style. No, Mark, he's just into it. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapters nine to ten tell us about the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus finishes ministry in Galilee, and then he's teaching the disciples along the way to Jerusalem. Chapters eleven through thirteen contain Jesus teaching in Jerusalem over that that last week of his life, and then chapter fourteen contains that Last Supper, that great event there in the upper room where uh, we see Jesus betrayed. He's arrested. Uh, also there in that chapter, he, he, he has a trial before the, the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders. Chapter 15 describes his false conviction. Uh, also his crucifixion, his death, as well as his, his, his burial. And then chapter 16 tells us about Jesus' resurrection. Three days after his death, he rose again. So let's just think about the style for a quick moment here. Mark gives us a lively account of Jesus' life, very lively account. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. It only has 16 chapters, and if you were to read it in one sitting, which I highly recommend you do, don't just bit and piece it together, but sit, on, take some time, really. Sit down, read the whole thing. And if you have a hard time doing that, maybe stand up. Read it out loud. But it only takes you about an hour to do that so Mark highlights action throughout the book. That's the style. It leaves us with the impression of a dramatic story. In fact, Mark's favorite word is the Greek word "euthus," which uh, is translated in our Bibles as straightway or immediately. It's his favorite word, straightway or immediately. I want to just give you a couple examples of that, just, just in chapter 1 alone here. Okay? Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Uh, look at verse 20. Verse 20. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Do you get the point? All right, That's just a few verses in chapter 1. So, Mark's favorite word is this Greek word, euthys, translated as straightway or immediately. So, so again and again, we see Mark, he's just, it, it, it's like he's, he's a director of a movie, and he's just constantly cutting from camera shot to camera shot, quickly going back and forth. There, there's no messing around. It's like a fast-paced movie, and Mark is just keeping the interest of his readers going by, by, by editing out you know, a lot of stuff that maybe the Romans wouldn't be that interested in. And so, my friends, you can see that Mark's source here is impeccable. The apostles themselves. His structure is clear. His style's engaging, all of which, by the way, makes Mark's gospel a, a good one to use for evangelism. In fact, there's, there's many good tools for evangelism that are based on the gospel according to mark uh, like christianity explained christianity explored for example just to name a couple so if you ever want to have a a good bible study with an unbeliever or even a new believer it's a good thing to do with them Uh, you can use mark's gospel and there's great tools out there Uh, even with videos you can use on the internet and they're all based on the gospel according to mark And it's also a great book for introducing the gospel and Jesus to non-Christians. So let's come to the book of Mark and just think about a moment. Well, what did Jesus teach? What did Jesus teach? What Jesus taught should be very important to us. And just right up front, let me be blunt. The, the, The main thing that Jesus taught was about himself. It was about himself. It was not about how to be some great moral person. It was not how to be a good person. Now, certainly he ended up doing some of that, but that's not the main point. The main point in this book is about Jesus. That is what Mark shows us. Now, let me ask you this question, and we'll just elaborate on this. What does Mark say Jesus came to do? What did Mark say Jesus came to do? Well, number one, Jesus came to bear authority. Jesus came to bear authority. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Verse twenty-two. And they were astonished at his teaching. Well, you might say, well, who, who are they? Well, if you back up to verse 21, it says, again, they went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. He was teaching there in the synagogue. Verse 22 says, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus wasn't like the scribes. Scribes would just talk about uh, rabbitic writings and traditions of the Jews. Jesus didn't do that. Because he inherently had authority. He came to bear authority. Let me give you another example. Verse 27. Verse 27. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. So Even the demons, those evil angels, obey Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ has all authority in heaven and in earth. Let me give you another example. Chapter 2 chapter 2 verse 10 look at look in your bibles chapter 2 verse 10 Uh, the bible says uh, this that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins now in that context (laughs) jesus ends up healing this uh, this paralyzed man jesus could have done many things, but he chose to talk about his sin. He forgave his sin. He's showing, hey, not only do I have authority over your body, I am the great creator, but I can also forgive sin. So he came to bear authority. Number two, Jesus came to suffer. Jesus came to suffer. Look at chapter 8. Have your Bibles ready, your fingers limbered up, ready to move? Alright, chapter 8, verse 31. Verse 31, And he began to teach them, that's Jesus, began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, that's not nothing new in the, in the Gospels. In fact, you see that truth many times. Let me give you another one. Chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31, For He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road, that's the disciples and Jesus, They were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. Those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So did he get the point? All right. Uh, we could keep going, but I'll stop there. But the, the point is Jesus knew why he came. It was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. You don't believe me. Hundreds of years before Christ came. Just read Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus knew God the Father would crush him. For our sins. You crush him on the cross and he would become our sin for us. So, Mark shows us that Jesus came to suffer. He shows us Jesus came to bear authority. But Mark also tells us that one day Jesus is going to come again and he is coming as a judge. He will return to judge. Look at chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 38. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is coming as a judge. He is the judge of the universe. All right, now look at chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 26. Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. When He comes, He's coming with great power and glory. He is coming, the Bible says, to judge. So in Mark's Gospel, Jesus knows who He is. Jesus is not a lunatic. Jesus is not a liar. He knows exactly who He is. He is God. He's also the suffering servant. He is the one who is going to come again, and when he comes, he's going to bring judgment. And so, this is Mark's teaching about Jesus. Mark understands that God came in human flesh. But this one who came in human flesh was rejected by, by the majority. He was crucified, and in the process, he died. He really died. <laughs> Okay, And then he rose from the grave, and he will come again in judgment. So that's basically the summarization of Mark's gospel about Jesus' teaching about himself. Well, how do people respond to Jesus? How do people respond to Jesus? Well, there's three responses you see in Mark's gospel. And basically, just so you understand, these are the same sort of responses you and I can expect. The same ones you and I can expect about Jesus. So let's, let's think about number one here. How did people respond to Jesus? Well, some people believed. Some people believed the, the, uh, these amazing truths that came from Jesus' mouth. Some people believed Jesus who is he? he believed he, he was who he actually said he was. Now it's interesting, the ones who believed. Let me just give you a, a small sampling from Mark's Gospel. For example, chapter 2, we're not going to look at them all, but in chapter 2, verse 5, the friends of the paralyzed man believed in Jesus. In chapter 5, the woman that was subject to bleeding believed in Jesus. Chapter 7, the Phoenician woman, a non-Jew, a Gentile, believed in Jesus. Chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus believed in Jesus. In chapter 15, the Roman centurion, who was there at the cross, believed in Jesus. Again, a non-Jew, a Gentile, believed in Jesus. Uh, Throughout the Gospels, you, you constantly see Gentiles often seem to have more faith than the ones who knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They believe in Jesus. And so when you think about who believed Jesus, really you're struck by the fact that most of these people were the, well, let me put it this way, they're not the religious professionals of that day. Rather, they were individuals. They were people on the outside of society. They were often women. They were often foreigners. They were disabled people. The disabled people and blind people could see better than the people who could see. A lot of times. Well, you might ask, well, then, did everyone believe in Jesus? Of course not. No, the answer is no. Not everybody believed in Jesus. In fact, the the second response is that some people were confused. Some people were confused, just like many are in our day. The amazing thing is, sadly, throughout this book, we see the disciples were slow to believe in Jesus. For example, I'll give you a classic example in chapter 8. Turn over there to uh, chapter 8, we see uh, here in chapter 8, after Jesus fed a very large crowd of people, and and by the way, this was the second time he fed a very large crowd of people with very little food, the disciples were surprised. Should they have been surprised? No, I don't think so. I don't think so, but they were surprised again. And look what Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 16. Verse 16. And they, the disciples, began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? (laughs) Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Wow. They were confused. They were slow to understand. The disciples didn't understand Jesus' teaching about His death and resurrection either. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus taught them several times what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I will die, and I will rise again on the third day. But they didn't get it. So Mark is clear, the disciples were confused. The disciples were slow learners, just like you and me. (laughs) That's how a lot of people respond to Jesus. They're just confused. Maybe it's an issue of, you know, a commitment phobia going on. I don't know. (laughs) A lot of times we're afraid to commit wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, lest there might be some better deal out there. So some people believed. Some people were confused. And then there were some that Mark shows us they were just antagonistic. Some were antagonistic. Some people clearly understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus clearly claimed to be God, clearly claimed to forgive sin, and they just opposed him. There were plots to take Jesus' life, and those started early in Mark's Gospel. And a lot of times those those plots to take Jesus' life came in response to the claims that Jesus was making. Take, Take heed, listen closely to Jesus' claims. In chapter 2, look look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jesus made several provocative claims. For example, he professed to be the one who could forgive sins. Yes, he claimed to forgive sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, the, the faith of the paralyzed man's friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So, he forgives the man's sins, and then Jesus heals this man who couldn't walk. Well, of course, this is a job that belongs to God alone. God alone is the only one who can forgive sins. And I want you to notice how the religious leaders respond to Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins. Look at chapter, or, sorry, chapter 2, verse 6. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, how does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And what's the answer? What is the answer, my friends? God alone is the one who can forgive sins. Now, I want you to look what the Pharisees were doing over in chapter 3. Pharisees didn't like Jesus' claims. Pharisees didn't like Jesus' healings and teachings. Look what these religious leaders have to say here. Chapter 3, verse 6. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. How to destroy him. They wanted to destroy Jesus. Right? Right? Their kingdom was crumbling. And when you, back, when you back someone into a corner, they often fight very nasty, don't they? And that's exactly what these guys did. So, should they have responded that way? Of course not. But Jesus was a precious gift, should have been received with gladness, and I say that because he is good news. Jesus himself is good news. But let me ask you this, my friend. Is Jesus good news for you? Is he good news for you? Remember chapter 1, verse 1. It says it's, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's one thing to think, oh, hey, that's good news. Yeah, oh, that's good news for somebody else. But how about you, my friend? Is Jesus good news for you? I want you to look again. Think about Mark chapter 1. Verse 1, it says it is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the word gospel mean? Let me make sure we're all clear on this. The gospel means good news, but what is the good news? Well, to understand the good news, you need to understand the bad news, because <laughs> there is no good news without bad news. If all there was was good news and no bad news it would just be news and so there has to be bad news in order to be good news let's let's just think about this in chapter seven okay just look at chapter seven chapter seven verse 20 chapter seven verse 20 what is the bad news you tell me what is the bad news as we read these verses Chapter 7, verse 20, he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So what's the bad news? Well, you don't have to answer out loud. The bad news is sin, right? The greatest problem you and I in this entire world has has nothing to do with economy, has nothing to do with climate, it has nothing to do with whatever else you can come up with, unless your answer is sin. Sin is our greatest problem. So the bad news is we've sinned, But we've broken a holy God's law. (laughs) We've broken God's law. And as a result of breaking God's law, you and I deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Yes, my friends, there is a literal place called hell. It does exist. So, that's the bad news. What's the good news? Well, in one word, the good news is Jesus The good news is Jesus, because remember, Mark 1, verse 1 says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is good news for you. And, by the way, he is good news for those who know and believe and have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. If you've never done that, then he's not good news for you, my friend, because listen closely. The Bible says in the book of James That the demons know God and tremble, but you're never going to see them in heaven. You understand? Judgment is coming for everyone. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus alone, then you get the bad news. You don't get good news. And so, this is only for those who know and, and, and believe why Jesus came. And you say, well, why did Jesus come? Look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 45. This could be, possibly, the theme verse for the entire book of Mark. Okay? You need to understand why Jesus came some 2,000 years ago. Look at chapter 10, verse 45. Verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for many. So, why did Jesus come to earth? He came to give his life. He died for sinners. He became that guilt offering. And in the process, he bore people's sins. All the people who ever put their faith in Jesus, he bore their sin on the cross so that you don't have to go to hell and spend all eternity. Bearing your own sin. So why did Jesus pay the ransom price? And by the way, the Bible says he paid it with his own blood. Why did he do that? Listen to what this commentator says. I quote. It's on the screen here. When God established the law, it specified the death penalty for disobedience. His holiness could not demand less. A sacrifice was needed to atone for the sins of humanity. The law set forth what kinds of sins demanded what kind of sacrifice. The problem was that these sacrifices needed to be offered continually. A sacrifice was needed that would be for all time a once-for-all ransom. What was needed was a man. A man. Because it was man who had sinned. But this man would have to be blameless. Only one who was God could satisfy the requirements of a holy God. Jesus Christ satisfied all parts of the law perfectly. His ransom price was offered and accepted. Our redemption was complete End quote. My friends, so you understand why Jesus came? He had to come. So who do you say Jesus is, my friends? Who do you say Jesus is? I'm not asking you, what do other people say Jesus is? Or what do you think other people say Jesus is? But what do you think about Jesus? You personally. That is a very important question, because what you think about Jesus is everything. Please understand that. It's everything. Acceptance or rejection of Jesus makes all the difference in the world, And and, in all eternity, you must understand, my friend, that He is Messiah. He is the Christ. He is God's Son who came to us in human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law and was crucified, buried. He was raised from the dead. He conquered death. He conquered the works of Satan in the process. He paid the penalty for sin. And so in the process... You don't have to pay the penalty for sin, which, remember, Romans says the wages of sin is death. You don't have to do that. Somebody had to do it. Either you're going to do it for all eternity, or you're going to trust Jesus to do it for you. That's your only options. And the Bible says, now Jesus reigns in heaven. One day he's coming back to earth. He's going to judge every human being who has ever lived. That's the truth. So, my friend, in order for you to be in heaven with Jesus, you must believe these truths. You must put your entire life in Jesus' hands. There is no one, no one else, nothing else that is worthy of that. So I ask you, my friends, if you've done that, let me ask you another question. Are you following Jesus Christ? Are you passionately following Jesus Christ? You have to understand, Mark's gospel is not just about Jesus. Yes, primarily it is. But it's also about who we are. It's about about us and our relationship to Jesus' claims of who he is. Did you know that Jesus' claim is total? Jesus' claim is total. It's not 99%. It's total, 100%. And I want you to see what Jesus says in chapter 8... Verse 34. Look at chapter 8. Put your eyeballs on Scripture. Chapter 8, verse 34. Okay. Look at Jesus' claim and notice its total. He called the crowds to him with his disciples. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the answer? It's a rhetorical question. It profits a man nothing. You could own the entire world. You could be as rich as all of the richest people in the world combined, own everything on planet Earth, if you die without Jesus, you still go to hell. It profits you nothing. So, Jesus laid down three conditions for true discipleship. True discipleship. Take note of these, okay? Number one, you must surrender yourself completely to Jesus Christ. You must Surrender yourself completely to Jesus Christ. My friends, now understand this. You will be surrendered. Your surrender can be divided. You understand that? It can be divided. It can be put in one direction. Hopefully, though, it's in one direction toward Jesus Christ. Because remember what Jesus said. Sometimes someone's uh, surrender, their their attention, their love, their worship can be toward money. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, but you cannot serve God and money. So, which is it going to be? Well, Jesus says, you must surrender yourself completely to Him. Completely, 100%. It's not, well, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to sit on the fence. That's a dangerous position to be. Don't ever sit on the fence. (laughs) Because Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation, he'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. It's the lukewarm who, who he vomits out of his mouth because those people make him sick. God wants you to be hot for him, on fire for him, completely sold out for him. Number two, you must identify with Jesus in suffering and death. You must identify with Jesus. Because Jesus Jesus says, Don't ever be ashamed of me and my words. You don't believe me. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You want Jesus to be ashamed of you? Then just sit on the fence. Just sit on the fence. Don't don't identify with Jesus. Identify with this world, and that's exactly where you'll be. Jesus says in 1 John that if you're a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God. You're an enemy of God, in fact. God calls you his enemy if you're a friend of the world. So you must identify with Jesus in suffering and a death. By the way, some of you have been baptized. Some are going to be baptized. Some are in the process of going through that and hopefully will be baptized very soon. Let me just say this. Baptism is, the Bible describes, as kind of that first step, if you will, in identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. Read Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 talks about you're identifying yourself with Jesus as you go through this beautiful picture of what Jesus does in your life. Are you, Are you... Walking with him, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. That's what, that's what baptism does. It's that, that first step of obedience, if you will, where you're saying, hey, I belong to Jesus Christ, and I'm proud of it. I'm identifying with him and his people. Come what may. Well, there's many ways we can identify with Jesus and his suffering and death. And by the way, taking up your cross... I's not just putting something around, a necklace on your neck. That's not what Jesus means by taking up your cross. This was not some little nice little trinket you, you wear as a necklace. A cross was a, a, a torturous piece of execution. <laughs> it was not something nice. It means you're, you're carrying something to your death, and it was not a nice death. It was a long, torturous death. And Jesus is saying, take up that cross. You are identifying with me, my suffering, and my death. So my friend, how about you? Where do you stand with Jesus? Are you identifying with him? And by the way, and his words? And his words? Scripture? Do you identify with Scripture? Or are you afraid of it? Don't be afraid of it. Number three, you must... Follow Jesus obediently wherever He leads you. Wherever He leads you. By the way, wherever He leads you is the best place to be. Do you actually believe that, though? I I know, I've debated that one with myself over the years. Remember when I was 15, I I surrendered to ministry, God calling on my life when I was 15. And and I, and, I wondered, like, okay, man, if I... If I do that, is God going to take me to South America? Am I going to go into the jungles in the Amazon? Or Is He going to send me into the Sahara Desert in Africa? I I don't know. I was making all all sorts of things, excuses and things. Maybe God could send me there. But you know what? If God sends you to those sort of places, that's the best place for you to be. You've got to follow Jesus obediently wherever He leads you. Because there is no better place anyway. He's a good God and a great God. He's not a mean God. So, my friend, listen closely. If you live for yourself, if you live this life for yourself, you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? Jesus tells you right here you're going to lose it. You're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to say, What a wasted life! But guess what? If you lose your life now, for Christ's sake and the Gospels, Jesus says you're going to find yourself. You're going to find yourself. Don't listen to that that rubbish that the world preaches to you. And I'm not talking about the preachers. (laughs) I'm talking about the world, this, this, this system that we live in. They're always talking about listen to yourself, let your heart guide you, and all this sort of worldly rubbish. That's not how to find yourself. Do not find yourself from within you. You find yourself from without. You go to God to find yourself. Again, look at verse 35. Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The only way to save your life The only way to not have a wasted life is to live it for Christ's sake and the Gospels. By the way, did you notice the motivation here for true discipleship? Look at that. True discipleship, verse 35. The motivation here is, number one, for Christ's sake, not yours, not anyone else, Christ's sake and the Gospels. It's interesting, Jesus adds both there. So to lose yourself, by the way, that is not some act of desperation. (laughs) That is not an act of desperation. It's an act of devotion. It's it's whom you know, not what you do. But we don't stop there, because personal devotion is something that should lead us to practical duty. And it involves, at least the starting point, is sharing the gospel with a lost world, because it's also the gospel's sake, the good news, who Jesus is and what he's done. In other words, Because we live for Him, we live for others. It starts with God and who He is. And because of who He is and what He's done for us, then we can even have the ability to live for others. It starts with God. So, non-Christian, non-Christian, listen closely. I'm talking to you for a moment. Non-Christian, listen. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? I'm talking to you as a non-Christian. Those of you who've never put their faith in Jesus alone. Who do you say Jesus is? You say he's just a good person? You say he's a prophet? Figment of someone's imagination? Your imagination? Or some other thing? All those are wrong. My friend, Jesus is God, and he's man. Two natures, one person forever. He's the one your faith must be in, and in him alone. So who do you say Jesus is? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Jesus said he's Lord. The Bible says he is Lord. And thousands and millions of people have put their lives on the line throughout throughout Christendom and throughout history saying he is Lord and have died for that truth. Do you think they got it wrong? No. He is Lord. He is who he said he is. And if you don't bow your knee willingly now, the Bible says, Philippians chapter 2, one day every knee will bow and will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you don't bend the knee willingly, it will be forced upon you. For you, my Christian friend, let me ask you this. Are you passionately following Jesus? Are you passionately following Jesus? Wholeheartedly. Loving God with all of your mind, your being, your soul, your strength, everything. It's a wholehearted, total, 100% commitment. Passionate, zealous, sold out, on fire. It's the only way it should be. So my friend, I think a lot of times we're not that way, though. That's certainly the way it is in my life certainly the way it is in my life as a believer in Jesus Christ it's too often I sin against him by not loving him with all I am not passionately following him I'm passionately following other things mainly myself and I'm sure you are too at times in your life but my friend the good news is the God whom we should serve knows you he knows you're but dust He died on the cross for you. For your sins. For your lack of love for Him. And you can go to Him because He is just and faithful. And when you do, the Bible promises you that He's going to forgive you of your sin. He's longing and waiting for you to return to Him. He's not a God who's who's waiting. Okay, this, this foolish child of mine, when he comes back, I'm going to punch him between the eyes. No, He's not doing that. He's like that that father in the story of the prodigal son, he's looking for his prodigal son to return. And when the son returned, what did he do? Throw him in prison? No. He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. Let's have a party. You've returned. My friend, that, that's the way the father is. That's the view you need to have of the father so when you go away from him, and we all do, run back to him. The God who forgives sin longing for you to return. You can passionately follow him with all of your entire being. He wants you to. He commands you to. and He gives you the ability to. Will you? Passionately follow Jesus Christ today. Tomorrow. For the rest of your life.